Amen. Okay, so it's 1 Corinthians chapter 9 that we're in tonight, and we're going to read through verses 1 to 18, uh, and then we're going to look at, uh, in this passage, three things that I think stand out as being important to Paul, who wrote this letter. Three things that really matter to him, the things that seem to drive him, and I'm not saying that these are uh, everything in his life that's important to him, but from this passage, this is three things that we can get from these 18 verses that seem to matter to him in that moment. So let's take a look. If you've got one of the church Bibles, you'll find it's on page 1150, but it will also come up on the screen. Clever, eh? Okay, this is what Paul says. He says, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? Even though I may not be an apostle to others, surely I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who sit in judgment on me. Don't we have the right to food and drink? Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us, as do the other apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas? Or is it only I and Barnabas who lack the right to not work for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and doesn't eat its grapes? Who tends a flock and doesn't drink the milk? Do I say this merely on human authority? Doesn't the law say the same thing? For it's written in the law of Moses, do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain. Is it about oxen that God's concerned? Surely he says this for us, doesn't he? Yes, this was written for us, because whoever plows and threshes should be able to do so in the hope of sharing in the harvest. If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? But we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Don't you know that those who serve in the temple get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in what is offered on the altar? In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. But I have not used any of these rights, and I'm not writing this in the hope that you will do such things for me, for I would rather die than allow anyone to deprive me of this boast. For when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast, since I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. If I preach voluntarily, I have a reward. If not voluntarily, I am simply discharging the trust committed to me. What then is my reward? Just this, that in preaching the gospel, I may offer it free of charge, and so not make full use of my rights as a preacher of the gospel. I'll give you a minute to think about that. I have a friend called Caroline. Many of you will know Caroline. She's part of this church. She's part of the leadership of this church. And um, Caroline and I lived together for six years. One day, uh, we, we took a trip to Ikea because Caroline wanted to buy a wardrobe. Not just any regular-sized wardrobes, but you know those massive Ikea ones that are like floor-to-ceiling? Absolutely enormous wardrobe. So off we popped, popped, just you know, nipped down the road to Ikea in Glasgow, Edinburgh. Got this giant wardrobe, managed to squeeze it in the car, got it home, managed to somehow, between us, get this enormous, despite being flat-packed, still enormous wardrobe, up two flights of stairs to our little flat, 
and we landed in the, through the doorway and she said, I want to build it now. And uh, I was like, oh, I can't, I can't. I've got to go out. I've got plans this afternoon. But I promise you, when I come home, we'll build the wardrobe together. I promise I'll help you later. And she was like, oh, okay, I want to do it. And I was like, no, no, wait. I'll, I will help you when I get home. Just wait. So off I went and did whatever I was doing. And when I came home, hours later, I opened the front door and I heard this, oh, I'm so glad you're here. Because Caroline had decided that she wanted to build the wardrobe on her own. And so I walked into her room to find that she'd built the kind of outside square shape and she was sat like this. <laughs> she said, I've been sat here for three hours. I can't move. She's like, I couldn't even get to the phone to tell you, you know, to tell you to come home or anything. She couldn't move. She was completely stuck. If you know Caroline, you'll know that's very true to her character. I want to do it on my own. I want to do it on my own. But it was difficult for her to do it on her own. She needed support. She needed help to complete the task, to complete her mission. And in this passage that we've looked at today, Paul, who wrote it, he lands on this, that the church should be partnering with and supporting those who are in full-time ministry. And you can all stop feeling awkward and thinking that I'm about to preach about getting a pay rise because I'm not going there, okay? That's not what I'm talking about this evening, so you can breathe a sigh of relief. He's talking about partnering with people who are in full-time ministry. So he takes them through these steps. He kind of asks them all these rhetorical questions, doesn't he? He says, look, you know me, don't you? You trust me, don't you? I'm an apostle, aren't I? And they're all going, yes, Paul, yes, yeah, you are Paul, yeah, we trust you, yeah. And he says, and, and don't I have the right to food and drink? And they're saying, yes, Paul, yeah, of course you do, yeah. And uh, he says, and you know that you know, people who work in farms, they eat a little bit of their crops, don't they? And people that work in vineyards, they get to eat some of their, um, nibble on some of their grapes, don't they? And they're like, yeah, Paul, of course they do, yeah. And he says, so, even, and even the oxen, you know, they work in the fields and even they get to eat a little bit of their hard work. And they go, yeah, of course, you're totally right, Paul. We absolutely agree. And then he goes, well, why aren't you paying me? If you've agreed with everything I've said, why aren't you paying me? Because it seems that Paul had been working away, preaching the gospel, planting this church, and they hadn't been paying him. But his assumption is that as Christians, the church, that we would want, surely, to support people who are in ministry. He says this in verse 11, if we've sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? And verse 14, it says, The Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. So he's saying, you know what? You need to bless those who have given themselves full time to ministry. Support them. Show them that they're not out there supporting this wardrobe, wobbly wardrobe, on their own. Those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. So stop being stingy. Stop taking advantage. Come on, be generous, church. Embrace kingdom partnership kingdom partnership our God he's all about partnership isn't he God loves team God loves family God loves community togetherness God himself he doesn't even work alone you go way back to Genesis to creation and uh, God says let us make man in our image chapter 1 verse 26 he's speaking in the plural let us make man in our image and he's talking about the fact that he God is three in one 
He is Father, He is Son, He is Spirit. And Jesus, He didn't work on His, He didn't send people out on their own. Jesus had His team of disciples. And then it said He called the 12 to Him in Mark 6 7. He called the 12 to Him and then He sent them out two by two. After that, it says the Lord appointed 72 more and He sent them out two by two. It says that in Luke 10. And we, as a church, we don't send people out alone because we know it takes many hands to build a wardrobe. As a church, um, it's really exciting. We support so many different uh, mission partners, is what we call them. Uh, People, friends of ours who give their lives to serving God in full-time ministry in a variety of ways around the world and in in our city here. Um, People who rescue abandoned babies. People who have set up orphanages. People who help others escape human trafficking. Uh, They train church leaders. They train church planters. They work in some of the poorest parts of the world. They work in some parts of the world where it's illegal to even be a Christian, working with ex-offenders, helping to integrate them back into society, uh, helping women who are having a crisis pregnancy, a number, a number of different friends of ours who work for different agencies around the world. We partner with them. They're our mission partners, and uh, it's so exciting. And you know what? We support them financially because we love what God is doing through them. We love what God is doing, how God is using them for the kingdom. You know, if you want to find out a bit more about some of uh, our mission partners, we have this, what do we call this? A leaflet called the Rough Guide to Global Impact. And it's quite a big leaflet, and we'd really love for you to get one. You can get one over there, because we can't publish a lot of stuff on the internet about what our mission partners do, because some of what they do is actually really dangerous in the countries they work in, and we don't want them to get in trouble by us talking about them. So it's all written down in paper form, old school. If you want to pick one up and have a look, I'd really encourage you to, because there's lots of very exciting stuff for you to pray through, read through, um, celebrate. However, I'm not just standing up here to blow our church's trumpet about how great we are and how many mission partners we support. What I actually want to encourage us to do is to consider what is our role in kingdom partnership? What is our role in financially investing in the kingdom? You know, where is it that you are financially investing at the moment for the kingdom? We don't just support those people uh, to be nice. <laughs> We don't just support them because they're our friends, but we do it because it's in the Bible, it's biblical. And not just caring for the poor, that is biblical, but partnering, that is biblical. This is what Paul's talking about. You need to support those people. They've given themselves full time for the kingdom. You need to support them. You need to look after them. There's a story that you may have heard about a man who was taking a a trip somewhere. He was sat at the airport waiting for his flight. And so he bought himself a coffee and he bought himself a bag of donuts and went to look for somewhere to sit. Turned out the airport was quite busy. So he had to ask another gentleman, oh, would you mind if I shared this table with you? And this gentleman said, yeah, of course you can. So he sat down, you know, took his coat off, put his coffee and his donuts down, coat off, suitcase down, newspaper out, get settled. Ah, okay. Took a swig of his coffee, put his hand in the bag to take a donut, sat back and thought, oh, delicious, glad I bought these. The gentleman opposite then reached over and took one of the donuts and ate it and smiled. And the man thought, did that really just happen? Did he just eat one of my donuts? But he didn't say anything and thought, hmm, 
pulled his bag slightly further towards himself, turned his body slightly away and thought, well, maybe my body language will communicate that I don't think that was a good move. Took himself another donut and kind of turned away and ate it. The gentleman opposite reached even further across the table, took a donut and ate it and smiled again, made direct eye contact. Well, the guy thought, this is taking the mick, isn't it? I mean, who does he think he is eating my donuts? And it went on and on, and it got to the point where there was one donut left, and the gentleman on the other side took it out the bag, ripped it in half, ate half, and offered the final half to the man. And he thought, you are joking. They're my donuts. You've got a nerve. As if I'm going to eat that. You know, I don't know where you've been. I don't know what germs you might have. No, thank you. I've had about enough of this. Got his stuff together, packed up his newspaper under his arm, put his coat on, went to get his suitcase, and as he looked down, he saw his bag of donuts on his suitcase. And he realized the whole time he thought that that man was stealing his donuts. He was actually sharing his donuts. God owns all the donuts. You know, when it comes to money, God owns everything. It's all his. And he's sharing it with us. He's sharing it with us. And we tend to think that it's ours, don't we? But it's God's, and he's given it to us, and we're looking after it for him. And because it's his, he cares what we do with it. He cares what we do with our money. What we do with our money is um, a discipleship issue. And you might be sitting there thinking, but Hazel, I've got 10 donuts, and actually, do you know what? I really need 11 to get by, and you're telling me to give one away, and that will only leave me with nine, and nine is just not enough donuts. Let me tell you this. God will always make your donuts go far enough. He will stretch your donuts so that you have enough. He might tell someone else, prompt someone else to give you one of their donuts. You know, the Lord's just told me I'm to share this with you. You might find an anonymous gift-wrapped donut put through your letterbox one day. God will give you enough to keep you going. And if you want to keep 11 donuts to yourself, you're just going to get fat, aren't you? You might think, I've only got half a donut to give. I mean, that's not even going to help anyone. That's not going to make a difference. But you know what? That is not true. Did you know that for the price of two coffees, you could send a child in Tanzania to school? So you and me just having a coffee, we could give a child an education. You know, so you think your half donut isn't much? It can go a really long way can go a really long way. It's not about how much you give, it's about the willingness of your heart to give. Don't be afraid to be generous. You know, Paul, who wrote this letter, he wrote a number of letters. He wrote another letter, uh, a second letter to the same church, 2 Corinthians it's called, and he, he wrote a chapter where he talks a lot about giving. He talks about money. He talks about how we should prayerfully consider what we give, and then we should give it with joy because God loves a cheerful giver. And he does this whole spiel about giving, giving, giving. And then at the end he says this, 2 Corinthians 9 verse 8, he says, God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things... At all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. God is able to bless you, so you have all you need. So it's like he's saying, don't worry. He goes, give, 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 and then he goes, and don't worry about it. It's going to be okay. God is able to take care of it. Mother Teresa said this once, no one has ever become poor from giving. 
So as we head into a new term, I want to just encourage us to make a little bit of time to perhaps look at our finances. You know, some people hate looking at their finances. It terrifies them. I don't particularly enjoy that either. But it's a really good thing to do from time to time is just to take stock. You know what? Where am I spending my money? Are there changes I could be making? And to pray, Lord, what do you want me to do with what you have given me? With this money that you have given me, what do you want me to do with it? Ask God what he thinks about your bank statements. And maybe you think you're fine and maybe you do already give to church and maybe you give to other charities and you support loads of people. That's fantastic and thank you and well done. Uh, But perhaps you've also been giving that money for a long time. I know for me, I've had the same direct uh, standing order set up to pay certain charities uh, for a really long time. And it just goes out of my bank and I don't think about it, which is great in some ways. And every now and then I think, actually, maybe I should, you know, my pay might have increased. So maybe my giving should be increasing too. You know, it's a good thing to take stock of your finances. So pray, Lord. What do you want me to do? How can uh, I partner with what you're doing? Lord, where do you want me to invest? And how can I make your gift a gift, your gift to me a gift to someone else? Lord, how can I partner with what you're doing? So Paul is passionate about partnership. That's a little bit of a mouthful. Secondly, another thing in this passage that I think we can see matters to Paul is the gospel the message of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us. I recently got married seven weeks ago yesterday and if any of you here have planned a wedding before or you're in the middle of planning a wedding, you will know it is just utterly consuming. It's totally consuming. It fills your whole mind. Well, maybe not for the groom so much, but I'd say this is a fairly common experience for women. Uh, it fills your everyday thinking, even the hours in the middle of the night when you should be asleep. You're just thinking, oh, wedding, wedding, wedding. You know, for us, it was like, will we go out tonight and have some fun? Or should we stay in and look at the spreadsheets and do some wedding admin? You know, I'd be like looking at people's hair on the street and going, oh, I like her hair. Do you think I could do that for my wedding? That's nice, isn't it? Even to the point where you'd like you go to someone's house and they'd be showing you the new curtains and you're thinking, what a lovely colour. Oh, bridesmaids' dresses. It, honestly, for a while, it felt like um, every decision I made was shaped by what was going on with our wedding planning. And I would deny myself of certain things for the cause, you know, better not have too much more chocolate because I have got a dress to fit into after all, you know, and I better not have too much coffee and alcohol because, you know, I want, my, I want my skin to look really fresh and nice. Because what it boils down to, what it's, what's actually at stake for me is my wedding day and it mattered to me deeply. To me, it was worth it. Paul is consumed by the idea of sharing the gospel. Every decision he makes is shaped by that. You know, will there be an opportunity for me to talk about Jesus if I do this? He denied himself for the cause, maybe not chocolate or coffee, but he denied his right to being paid for preaching. You know, he says in verse 12 of this passage, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. In other words, There is nothing else that is as important to me as telling people about Jesus. 
You know, for Paul, what it boiled down to, what was at stake for him, people's eternal destiny, it mattered deeply to him and it was worth it. It mattered to him so much that he would do it for free. He would preach for free. Isn't that funny? After all of that preamble he gave about how he has this right to be paid, doesn't it make sense that you should pay people for what they do? After all that, he turns around in verse 15 and he says, I've not used those rights. I might have those rights to be paid. I have not used those rights and I'm not even writing in the hope that you will do such things for me. I like that. There's a man of integrity. There's a man who practices, practices what he preaches. He spent the last few chapters talking about how, you know, you might have rights to some things, but you don't always have to use them. And here he is saying, I have a right to be paid, but I'm not going to use that. I'm not going to use that. Because you know what? What's more important is that people hear about Jesus. That is more important. And I don't want people to be distracted by me. I don't want people to be sat there thinking, oh, well, he's only doing this for the money. I just want people to see Jesus. That's what matters to him. He's so driven by that. He's so concerned that people hear that. Jesus said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. They must deny themselves. Being a Christian means that sometimes we have to just lay down our reputation, don't we? Uh, We have to take risks. We have to do things that sometimes other people would question, might think we're crazy for doing, but we do it because we love God and we're pursuing him. You know, when it comes to rights, we think we have rights to certain things, don't we? We think, for example, that we have a right to a house, um, to a car, to a holiday, and there's nothing wrong with any of those things in and of themselves. But what if God asked you to give them up? You know, what if God suddenly said, I want you to ask that person to come and lodge with you? Or if God said, I want you to give your car to that family, they need it more than you do. Or if God said, I want you to take your holiday saving fund and I want you to give it to this thing. You know, how tightly do we hold on to our rights? The things that we think we've earned, the things that we maybe feel we've worked really hard for, how tightly do we hold on to them? Or will we deny ourselves? Will we lay them down? Because we're not consumed by the stuff, but actually we're consumed by Jesus. That's what Paul did, isn't it? He laid down his rights. He denied himself. He was determined. He was so focused on following God that the stuff didn't matter to him. Hebrews 12 says this. It says, run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Run. Run the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. You know, it's funny, isn't it? That says run with perseverance. And we often talk about our Christian life as if it was a walk, don't we? We use that phrase, on my walk with the Lord, or my walk with God. And yet, there's a number of times throughout Scripture where our Christian life is actually referred to as a run. Uh, Later in this passage, Paul starts talking about it. Later in this chapter, which I think Dave's preaching on in a couple of weeks, he says this, I run to get the prize, a prize that will last forever. Philippians 2.16, I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. Galatians 2 verse 2, I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. And 2 Timothy 4 verse 7, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. The Christian life is a run. 
And yet, often, I don't know about you, but I saunter and I stroll. And sometimes I sit down for a while. And yet, in scripture, I see, run. Run with perseverance. Run, go for it, be determined, keep going. I hate running. I hate running. You get blisters. When I run, people laugh. Uh, it's sweaty. I don't like feeling, that feeling of being out of breath. I hate running. But running is worth it. Not that I do it very often. Running is worth it for that reward of fitness. Or if you're in a race, you know, maybe there is actually a prize. And running the Christian race, you know, the prize of being with Jesus forever and hearing him say, well done, good and faithful servant. Is that not worth it? Paul says, verse 12, I will put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. I'll put up with anything rather than stop me sharing the gospel. He'd probably say, I will put up with anything. I will push through uh, the blisters and the sweat and the stitches and the breathlessness. He is so determined. And so a couple of challenges for us. Am I determined to run hard with my relationships? Will I deliberately turn a conversation with my friend to being about Jesus because it's more important than talking about the weather? Will I be determined to run hard in my workplace? You know, even though I'm a manager and I'm respected, will I still love and serve others and be obedient to God rather than serve myself and my reputation and my position? When I'm new to my class or my job or my uni and I'm desperate to make friends and be liked, you know, will I still determine, be determined to be real about who I am and what I believe? Because honoring Jesus matters more than my popularity. Will I be determined to run hard with my finances? You know, to give that extra money to a church or some mission uh, because it's more important than me getting that Starbucks. You know, will I sacrifice my subscription to Sky Movies for a season so I can invest in what God is doing somewhere else? Will I run hard with my time? Will I choose to roll over in the morning and hit the snooze button or will I get up and spend time with God because my relationship with God matters more than my sleep? I heard this week about a member of our church who has been giving their time to learning Polish so that they can connect with their community. And they don't know that many phrases, but one of the phrases that they have learned to say is, the Holy Spirit will help you. And I found that so inspiring, that they were so determined to connect with their community, that they would work hard, invest their time in that, in order to actually talk about God, to talk about that, the Holy Spirit will help you. If it can say nothing else, it can bring that reassurance. How's that for determination? How's that for plowing time into the kingdom? It strikes me that Paul was running hard. He was running hard in all of these areas. So I just want us to take a moment to think, you know, where is it that we've got lazy? Where is it we've slowed down, got tired, sat down? I believe tonight God wants you to hear, well done, well done, keep going, don't stop, keep going, don't stop, persevere, be determined, don't stop, keep going, don't stop, well done. So what matters to Paul is sharing the gospel, his determination to do that, whatever the cost. Finally, what else mattered to Paul? 
pursuing his calling. Verse 16, he says these, and these are strong words. He says, I am compelled to preach. I'm compelled to, to preach. And in the ESV version, actually, where it phrases it like this, necessity is upon me. I must do it. You know, it's almost like he can't help himself. He has no choice. He just has to preach. It's oozing out of him. Verse 17, he says, I'm discharging the trust committed to me. You know, it's almost like, look, God's given it to me. He's trusting me with it, and it's just my job to give it away. He's been given a gift and he's giving it away. And he says it's his joy, it's his pleasure, and it's his reward to do that for free. But the point is this. He knew what he was made for. And he did it with his whole heart. I am compelled. I am compelled and woe to me if I don't do it. He knew his purpose. He knew what God intended for his life and he lived it out in obedience. Anybody here heard of a guy called Nick Wallander? No? He's a record breaker. Okay, yeah, you were here this morning. That doesn't count. <laughs> Last year, Nick Wallander set uh, a new world record. He's a tightrope walker. And uh, last November, when it was a cold night, when the winds were howling, he completed two death-defying uh, high-wire walks. The first one was on a high-wire between two uh, skyscrapers. And it was also on an incline, so he went upwards 19 degrees, which was a difference of eight stories between the two skyscrapers. He did that. That was his first challenge. His second one, he did a blindfolded walk suspended 500 feet above the Chicago River. And he did it. It had never been done before. Do you know, it was broadcast on the Discovery Channel, but they broadcast it on a 10-second delay in case he fell to his death. He was from a family of tightrope walkers, and his great-grandfather, in fact, fell from a wire and died. But it didn't stop him. And he now intends to walk across the Tallulah Gorge in Georgia, as his great-grandfather did 45 years ago. And when he's there, he hopes to perform two headstands on the rope. Good luck to him. I watched this feat on YouTube. I watched him do it, right? And I knew that he was okay. I knew that he didn't die. But even as I watched it, knowing the outcome, my heart was absolutely pounding. I was scared for him because I know that walking a tightrope, not that I've ever done it, is scary and very, very difficult. Some of us, we view God's will for our lives as if it's a tightrope. You know, is it right that I take this job? Is it God's will for me to pursue this relationship? Should I serve in this ministry or that ministry? You know, what if I fall off God's will? You know, what if I miss here my calling? And we can make God's will, God's call, seem like such a scary and difficult thing to follow. You know, something that takes real precision and skill. And it's, we feel as if there's no safety net to catch us. You know, if we fall off, all oh, that's it. It's game over. But I believe God's will for us is like a wide open road. I think God is more concerned that we walk that road with him. And he's less concerned about whether we walk on the left or the right, whether we take this job or that job. He just wants to walk that road with us. You know, in the old days when you were like going to your friend's house for the first time and you'd ring them up and be like, oh, where is it, where is it that you live? How do I get to your house? You'd get this like long-winded explanation, wouldn't you? Well, you follow this road for a little while and then you take this slip road here and then you go down that road, left, 
and then left again, and then when you get to the pub, you turn right, and you know when you see that house with the red gates, well, we're the one next to it, and you'd be frantically writing it all down, okay, red house turning, mm, okay, and then you'd set off on your journey, and if you got lost, well, you're lost, aren't you? And you're like, did I write it down wrong? Did I miss here? And you're stuck. You have to do that embarrassing thing of asking for directions that everybody hates doing. You know, that's how it used to work. But these days, we have this lovely contraption called Sat-Nav. And my lovely Mrs. Sat-Nav, when I seem to get lost, she just very gently says, turn around when possible, or recalculating. And bless her, lovely lady that she is, she always manages to get me back on track. And I think God is like that. You know, even on that wide road, he puts boundaries in because he knows best. And we can ignore those boundaries sometimes, right? We can go off track. We can ignore him. We can make poor decisions, you know, and we can go off track. But God will always be there to say, rerouting, recalculating, to get us back on track. He doesn't go, oh, well, you're lost. That's it. You're stuck. He doesn't go, oh, you went that way. Oh, you took that job. Oh, well, that's it. I wash my hands of you. We're done. He doesn't do that. He just says recalculating, and he's always there waiting to bring us back onto that wide road. Some of us, I think, we imagine it's like God's got this secret blueprint, you know, the will, his will for our lives. It's a secret blueprint. It's locked away in a cupboard somewhere, and you just really wish that you could get the key to that cupboard because you desperately want to know, God, what is your will for my life? What is my calling? You know, because we, some of us, we sit there and we're like, I don't have a really clear idea of calling. I'm not like Paul. I can't say I'm compelled to do this or that. Like, I, I have no idea. But let me say this, if you're a Christian, the greatest call on your life is to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And as we walk that road with Jesus, loving him wholeheartedly, some of the rest of it starts to fall in place, but it starts with everyday obedience. You know, and you might say, yeah, but what about beyond that? I want to know the specifics. I want to know what I'm made for. I want to know what God really wants me to do. You know, sometimes it's really as obvious as you think, you know, God puts desires in your heart. You know, the stuff that you want to do, often that is from God. You know, so if you're not sure of your calling, ask yourself, well, what is it that I'm passionate about? What gets me excited? And then what am I actually good at? Because I'm passionate about cake, but I'm not very good at making it, right? So you need to be passionate about it and good at it. And then on top of that, ask other people, am I good at that? Because it's no good if you think you're good at it and they're all going, uh uh-uh. But what am I passionate about? What am I good at? And what do other people say I'm good at? And when you think you might know what some of that is, and then just you can say, here I am, God. Here I am, God. Take some risks, push some doors, and see what God might do. But it's a step at a time of loving him with heart, soul, and mind in everyday, ordinary obedience. Maybe some of you here do actually kind of have an idea of what you think you're called to do. You do, you do um, have a sense of what God has put in your heart, but you kind of don't know what to do with it, and you don't know where to start. Don't wait 
Don't wait to be discovered or don't wait to be given um, a title or a job, you know. I think about King David. He wrote the Psalms in the Bible. You know, they're essentially a bunch of worship songs. So King David, he was a songwriter. And yet many of his songs were not written in the palace. They weren't written when he was a king, but they were written in a field while he was tending sheep long before he was ever made a king. You know, his most famous song, The Lord's My Shepherd, what do you think inspired him to write that? You know, he didn't wait till he was king. He didn't think, oh, I'll save my songwriting until people will really listen to me. He just did it. He just did it because it was in him. You know, if, you're, if you feel called to be a worship leader, then lead worship at home. Lead worship for your dog and your budgie. Just do it. You know, if you feel called to be a pastor, then love people. Take people out for coffee. Listen. Pray with them. If you feel called to preach, I have a friend who now is a pastor, but at the time when he was feeling like God was stirring that in him, he used to write talks. He used to write sermons, even though he knew he had no one to preach them to. But he was like... I feel like God wants me to preach, so I'm going to practice. I'm just going to start doing it now. I love that. You know, you might think I'm not called to do any of those upfront things, but I do, I do love to help. Well, then help people. Serve people. Look for opportunities to be kind and useful and help. You know, you don't need to be given any kind of special badge to do that. Just do it. If you know what you're for, start doing it now. Don't wait. Above all, Love God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. You know, that was Paul's first calling. That is my first calling. That is our first and highest calling. So let's start there. I want to be able to say, I am compelled to love God with all my heart, soul, and mind. So let's start there and see what unravels. Why don't we stand?